You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. This is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 16, and I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Today, I wanted to dive into the topic of individuality versus tyranny. This is another reading that comes from the Academy of Ideas. I recently did a reading, another article on political philosophy from the Academy of Ideas entitled Fear and Social Control. You can go back and listen to that episode from a couple of weeks ago, but I got so much positive feedback from it and such a uh, good response that I thought I would go back to the Academy of Ideas because there is no shortage of uh, thought-provoking articles on their website. And as well, if you go to YouTube, you can watch the videos of these transcripts that I'm reading from. I'll post a link to both the transcript and the video in the show notes. With that being said, let's just dive right into it. This is fantastic. And obviously, for those of us on May 20th, 2020, the matter of the individual versus tyranny is a matter, is a topic that's on a lot of people's minds, at least a lot of people that I talk to, and comes up quite often right now as far as the rights of the individual and the civil rights of the individual over and against the executive orders of particular politicians and state leaders, federal leaders, and where is the line between our civil rights, our constitutionally guaranteed civil rights, and the authority of the state or the authority of a government or its leaders to limit, curtail, or simply remove our constitutional rights? Where's the line? And if the line is crossed, would we as individuals, would we as a society even recognize when the line has been crossed? And I think more dreadful to consider is, do we care? Would we even care if we recognized it? So let's dive in. This is the transcript then of the video, The Individual versus Tyranny. The simple step of a courageous individual is not to take part in the lie. That's from Alexander Solzhenitsyn's book, The Gulag Archipelago, which, by the way, I highly recommend if you've never read The Gulag Archipelago. It's a thick book. It's a dense read, but definitely one of those books that I think you owe it to yourself to make it through at least once in your life. Maybe even if you can find it, sometimes they sell it in a two-volume set or even a three-volume set. Might be a little bit more digestible to break it down into that kind of bite-sized chunks. But nonetheless, it's definitely one of those things that I think everybody who's a thinker and everyone who's concerned with this topic uh, definitely owes it to themselves to read. So let's continue. The simple step of a courageous individual is not to take part in the lie. These are the words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the 20th century Russian author, most famous for his book, The Gulag Archipelago, which documents the decade he spent as a political prisoner under Stalin. As a close observer of one of the most tyrannical regimes in history, Solzhenitsyn firmly believed that in combating tyranny, the individual plays a crucial role. This belief in the power of the individual, not only to combat tyranny, but also to maintain the health of a society was shared by many other great thinkers of the past few decades, or I'm sorry, past few centuries, including Rolf Waldo Emerson, Friedrich Nietzsche, William James, and Carl Jung. These days, such a view is unfashionable. I just had a text message 
the other night from a friend of mine out in California. And he noted from something that I had sent to him that I would make a terrible Marxist. And I chuckled and I texted back at him that when I was in my early 20s, I was a fan of Engels, but I've never been a fan of Marx because Engels was the guy with boots on the ground. He's the one who went to the factories and went and talked to the workers and went amongst the villages and the towns and the cities to discover the plight of the so-called common man. And Marx was the idea guy. Marx never held a job in his life. He relied on Engels to pay his way for most of his adult life. And Marx's children, his daughters in particular, were also, well, gold diggers. And they relied on Engels as well until he cut them off. And that's a tragic story in and of itself. But I've never been a fan of Karl Marx, especially once I discovered that it was Engels who was really doing all the uh, field research. But in my early 20s, like I said, I was of that mindset. And I was a, a, what do you want to say, a devotee of Noam Chomsky and Howard Zinn and other authors of that bent. I followed their political philosophy. But as I got older, as I said to my friend, what happened is that as I got older and I had to carry my own water, that's when I discovered the value of every drop. And that's why I could never be a Marxist because I believe so vehemently in the individual and in personal responsibility and accountability. I think reading Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink was one of those benchmarks in my life as an adult especially, that when I read it, every word, every page made sense to me immediately. And I immediately put it into practice because it wasn't so much that Jocko and Leif were revealing something that I didn't already know. Rather, they were giving a voice, they were giving words, they were giving a structure to what I was trying to formulate and express for myself and for others in a very simple, efficient, effective way. And that's what extreme ownership and then dichotomy of leadership did for me and for my wife. And as a consequence, what I find more often than not, because I don't claim a team for myself, I'm not team red or team blue, I'm not Republican or Democrat, and I refuse to be boxed in and defined and explained away by others in that way that the, the more I cling to my individual, well, let's call it a right at this point, my individual right or my individual freedom to be a free thinker, to be a critical thinker, and to say, I can agree with you if you're a Democrat or a Republican. I can agree with you if you're a liberal or a conservative, or I can disagree with you. I am free to ask both sides questions. I am free to think critically about both sides' ideologies or their presentations, I am free to judge for myself whether what you're saying has an ethical or moral value that I also want to embrace and affirm or reject it. But I will not become a, what do you want to say, a cog in the machine. I will not be sacrificed to the institution so that it can continue to preserve itself at the expense of human life. That I will not be a part of group think to, to reference George Orwell, but rather I will participate in groups in freedom until such time as that group impinges upon or attempts to seize my freedom from me. And then when I'm no longer free to participate because now my freedoms are being impinged upon or it's a demand that's being placed upon me to conform to the group, speak like the group, think like the group, if I'm not allowed to criticize, if I'm not allowed to question, if I'm not allowed to express myself within that group, 
I don't want to be a part of the group anymore because I'm no longer a part of the group. I've been subsumed into the group and my identity has been eradicated by the group, by group think, by group speak. And I simply refuse at this point in my life to allow that to happen to me anymore because I've been a victim of it so many times in the past. And I'm sure many of you have as well. We all have to make compromises. That's the dichotomy, right? We have to, we have to get a paycheck. We have to pay the bills. We have to work. We have to participate in industry or enterprise. We have to be a part of an institution in one way, shape, or form. We all do it. But do we do it in freedom or do we do it as slaves? Are we prisoners to the institution? Are we prisoners to our paycheck? Are we prisoners to what other people expect of us and demand of us? Or do we freely enter into that? Do we voluntarily enter into that contract and say, yes, to the extent that it benefits both of us, I will continue to participate in this job or this relationship or this group or this institution. But when the institution or the group or the relationship or the enterprise seeks to dehumanize me to the extent that I simply become a cog in a machine, it's time for me to go. Because if I lose my humanity, what is there that is going to be left for me? But then if I lose my humanity, if it's taken from me, what's left for others? What am I really if I'm not a human being, if I don't even know what's real, if I don't even know who I truly am, what my authentic self is, if I don't know who I am and I'm not constantly working to improve that person and to grow as a person, as an individual, not just for myself, but for the good of my community, for the good of my coworkers, for the good of fellow students and other teammates, for the good of the stranger on the street who I help, if I'm not constantly engaged in that activity, then what good am I? other than a sacrifice to be thrown into the pit so that the monster can continue to eat. So the article goes on, the belief in the power of the individual not only to combat tyranny, but also to maintain the health of a society was shared by many other great thinkers of the past few centuries, like I read, Rolf Waldo Emerson, Friedrich Nietzsche, William James, Carl Jung. But their views today, kind of unfashionable, kind of unpopular. Individual responsibility, extreme ownership, the rights and the freedoms of the individual, not very popular right now. This video will put forth the argument that while collective action, in the sense of cooperation among groups of people to achieve common ends, is obviously an important vehicle for manifesting change, it will be ineffective at bringing freedom to an unfree world if people do not first strive to set themselves right free their minds of the incessant indoctrination they have been exposed to and in the process develop into strong, independent, and effectual beings, which is what I just said, which, great. I, haven't, I actually haven't read this before right now, so I said that not having read this paragraph. So either I'm, I'm affirmed in my own thinking or <laughs> I'm running ahead. But nonetheless, there you go. That is that, in a sense, yeah, you do have to cooperate within groups to achieve common ends. And this is obviously important because that's how change happens. Change for the individual, change for a group of individuals. And it can be a change for good. You can see groups who work for positive change and good comes from those groups and their work. We have those in our houses. We have those in our communities. We see that within our jobs even. That not every industry, not every entrepreneur, not every industrialist, not every capitalist is inherently evil but that 
each person and therefore each company and each enterprise must be judged on its own merits and demerits. But that ultimately, anything that they do will be ineffective at bringing about freedom in an unfree world if we don't first set ourselves as individuals to being free in our mind, free of indoctrination that we're exposed to every single day, and instead we develop a strong, independent, and effectual sense of being a human. A human being, a being. The being part of human is a verb. For as Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, the antidote to this abuse of formal government is the influence of private character, the growth of the individual. If you hear any kind of background hum or noise, that's uh, somebody mowing outside. Nothing I can, Again, there's Epictetus in a nutshell. Only focus on what you can control. And I cannot control whoever is mowing outside my window in someone else's yard. But Ralph Waldo Emerson, the antidote to abuse by formal government is the influence of private character and the growth of the individual. Looking back at recent history, one will notice a commonality amongst the most brutal dictators of the 20th century, be it Stalin, Hitler, Mao, Castro, Kim Il-sung. Namely, they all stressed the importance of the collective over the value of the individual. Examining why tyrants such as these, as well as politicians of today, are such proponents of collectivist ideologies will make it clear why one must look to the individual to counter tyranny. Those who desire to rule over others do not espouse collectivist ideologies because they believe it will benefit those over whom they rule. Rather, they do so because it provides them with a secure source of power. The immense benefits of collectivism for those who desire power arise from the fact that collective ideologies are amorphous. In other words, given that a collective is merely a group of people, Collectivist ideologies can be built around innumerable possible factors, be it race, ethnicity, wealth, religion, or what is most common today, the country in which one resides. I think we all see this, especially on social media, with cancel culture and the identitarian left, as it's labeled. Collectivism manifests itself in a way that's actually easy to recognize, even if we can't define what a collective ideology is in particular. Because in my experience, collectivists are the most racist, ethnocentric, classist, bigoted, homophobic, xenophobic, transphobic, misogynistic people you'll ever run into. And those are actually, in my experience, the people who rail and shout the loudest against the very things that they say they oppose. That those who are most anti-sexist are the most sexist people I meet because they make everything about sex and gender and gender politics. Those who rail against racism, in my experience, are the most racist people I've ever met because they make everything about race. Rather than judge a person by the content of their character, everything's about race. These people are virtuous because of the melatonin, the level of melatonin in their skin. These people are, are naturally unvirtuous because of the lack of melatonin in their skin. It doesn't have anything to do with their character. It doesn't have anything to do with their behavior as individuals. But rather, all white people are evil. All black people are evil. All brown people are evil. Whatever it might be. We just label all men as being evil because of their gender. Or all people are evil because of the color of their skin. 
That's ridiculous. And yet that's collectivist politics. That's a collectivist ideology. We don't care about the individual. We only care about how the group is defined. And then those that fall within that group are now easier to define. That's why I don't prefer to be labeled or categorized according to one or another group that I am a part of. Because then it's, well, that group, that person in that group or those people in that group did that. And therefore, all of those people in that group are this way. Think of police shootings or think of corrupt cops or think about police that are caught on video overreaching their authority. Are all policemen like those police? No, of course. Are those the exceptions to the rule? Yeah, I think so. I want to hope so. I, I like to think so. I've definitely met more virtuous, upright police officers in my life than I have unvirtuous and cruel police officers. And yet the exclusion is meant to define the whole of the group. Therefore, if this cop is dirty or this police officer shot this young black man in the street over here, that means that all police are racist. All police are bigots. All police are power-hungry bigots. All police are jackbooted SS stormtrooper Nazis. Versus, let's judge that person over there or those people on the merit or the demerit of their actions and not judge everyone by their decisions. Because we can go back generation after generation after generation with this. If you think that President Trump is a good president or a bad president, go back to Obama and then go back to Bush and then go back to Clinton and then go back to the first Bush and then go back to Reagan and just keep going back. You're always going to find someone who's worse than the guy is today or the guy today is worse than everyone that came before him. But we tend to just lump everyone into a group like that. Well, anybody who's associated with him, and because I don't like Donald Trump or I do like Donald Trump, Everyone associated with Donald Trump is either good or evil, and I'm going to give them all a pass or I'm going to give them all a fail just based on the fact that they are associated with this guy, Donald Trump, versus, well, why don't we judge the president on his own individual merits and demerits and then judge those around him on their individual merits and demerits rather than as a whole? But that's collectivist ideology, and we all fall victim to it, both those who lean liberal politically and conservative politically, those who are conservative philosophically and those who are liberal philosophically. The temptation, especially right now, is to fall into one or the other ditch and become a part of a collectivist ideology. And all you have to do in order to, to be a part of this is give up your individual your individuality and make everything about race or ethnicity or wealth or religion, whatever it might be, the country that you come from. Thus, as Ludwig von Mises wrote, there is no uniform, there is no uniform collectivist ideology, but many collectivist doctrines, each of them extols a different collectivist entity and requests all decent people to submit to it. Each sect worships its own idol and is intolerant of all rival idols. That's exactly right. Collectivist ideology eventually becomes a religion. It becomes a cult. And as with every religion, there must be a God that we worship, whether the God is the state or a political leader or a philosophical leader, whether it's a brand like Apple or Microsoft or whatever it might be. We erect these gods, whether it's the cult of celebrity, the cult of politics, the cult of religion. We form these cultuses, these organizations. We gather around our gurus, our high priests. We worship at the altar. We offer our sacrifices to the gods in expectation that we will get a reward based on the sincerity and purity of our sacrifice. And when we are not rewarded, that's when we start to 
question. That's when we start to get upset and angry. That's when we start to push. And that's the most dangerous place for those who are pulling the levers and making sure that every all the gears spin the right way. But that in the end, each sect worships its own idol and is intolerant of all rival idols. We see this in politics every single day, but we also see this with those who worship the cult of celebrity. If this or that actress or actor says this or that about climate change or politics or name a political cause, that's that's what I'm, I'm going to stand on that because I worship this person. I love this person. They're the greatest. I love all their movies. It doesn't matter who they are as individuals in real life. It doesn't matter whether they're moral or immoral, whether they're depraved or whether they're righteous. All that matters is that from their movies, I've grown to love and worship them. And as a consequence, whatever they say, it's as if it came from the mouth of God himself. There is no denying that as social beings, human has, humans have a natural yearning for community and a desire to attach themselves to some form of a collective. Exactly. But those who desire to rule over others do not want people to attach themselves to any such collective. Rather, they want people to elevate to the position of superiority, a specific collective. Oh, there's a word missing there. Of the superiority of a specific collective. Over the past several generations, it is the nation state which has most commonly been elevated to the position of the supreme collective by those who desire and seek to rule over others. This has not been a spontaneous process, as without indoctrination and heavy doses of propaganda, it is far more likely that people would identify more closely with their local communities and others they have more intimate connections with not millions of people in vast geographic areas. We see this today with the coronavirus, that these state governors, these federal political leaders, want us to identify with the collective whole, the United States. And even then, governors want us to identify with the whole of our state, with the population of our state. And yet, where I live at anyways, the, the local community has taken on more and more importance to those who live within it. I know ranchers and farmers who are selling produce, selling their meat off the books so that they don't get shut down by the state because the supply chains have broken down and they're going to go bankrupt. They're going to lose everything if they don't sell their livestock, if they don't sell their produce. And so my family, for example, buys locally. We get our eggs from the farm. We get our beef and our pork and our chickens from the farm. We get everything from our local butcher and because... This is how we have chosen to to live and to feed our family, is to focus locally and support those around us who are in our community. We don't necessarily, I don't want to say we don't care about the broader population of the state, but rather our primary focus, our priority, our first priority is on the local community and making sure that our community is taken care of. Because by local community, we mean our neighbors, flesh and blood people who need money to pay bills, who need to put food on their tables, who need to take care of their families. And my family recognizes that the well-being of those ranchers and farmers is our well-being in point of fact, because the food on our table came from them. If those farmers and ranchers fail, there's no food on our table, or we have to go somewhere else and procure other means of getting food on our table. But we'd prefer not to do that because we know where the meat comes from. We know where the vegetables and the fruit comes from. We know its nutritive value. We know what it was fed. We know what cow that calf came from. 
We know how they raise their livestock. We know how it's prepared. We know how it's rendered. We know we are a part of the entire supply chain in our local community because of that. Are we concerned for the state? Of course, we're concerned for all people, but it's not our primary priority because those, those people are an abstraction. They're people, but in an abstract sense, I don't know them in concrete reality. And then millions of people, over 300 million people in the United States, how can I possibly concern myself with what's happening in Dallas, Texas, or San Diego, California, or Trenton, New Jersey right now? I don't know any of the people that live there. I know a few people in San Diego, but I can't take care of them from where I'm at. I can't help them with their lives from where I'm at. I can only help those who are immediately in front of me, who are my immediate flesh and blood neighbors. And so that's what I choose to do. That's my priority. That's not to say if someone that I know from San Diego calls me and says I need help, I'm not going to help them. Of course I'm going to help them. But that's not my primary priority. But then the flip side, indoctrinating people to worship the collective of one's nation is extremely valuable for politicians as they are viewed as the leaders of these collectives. And thus, the more people who identify with the nation state, the more minds those in power have under their control. But while offering immense benefits to the ruling elite of a nation, this form of collectivism paves the way for tyranny. As Carl Jung explained, the increasing, de in the increasing dependence on the state is anything but a healthy symptom. It means that the whole nation is, in a fair way, to becoming a herd of sheep, constantly relying on a shepherd to drive them into good pastures. The shepherd's staff soon becomes a rod of iron, and the shepherds turn into wolves. That was worth the price of admission today, right? <laughs> That's a great quote. The increasing dependence on the state is anything but a healthy symptom. It means that the whole nation is in a fair way to becoming a herd of sheep, constantly relying on a shepherd to drive them into good pastures. The shepherd's staff soon becomes a rod of iron, and the shepherds turn into wolves. The ability to indoctrinate people, to believe in the supremacy of a certain collective, and thus to be turned into what Jung called a herd of sheep, is crucial for a tyrannical regime to maintain control over a population. This is something we talk about all the time in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, or at least I talk about with my teammates and friends in jiu-jitsu. Something that happens as a consequence of training, and not just jiu-jitsu, but this is Muay Thai as well. You get punched and kicked in the head or the liver enough times, it changes your perspective on life and the world in general. But something I talk about with then other mixed martial artists, jiu-jitsu folks, Muay Thai folks, when you walk out of the gym, especially after you've got some years under your belt in mixed martial arts, you tend to see people as sheep, or sheeple as I call them, that they just go along with whatever is told to them by the TV. Whoever, whatever talking head is on the TV, whatever that talking head tells them, they just go along with it. It's like they don't even, they've lost the ability to think for themselves. They've lost the ability to ask questions. Perfect example, I had a conversation again the other day about the most addictive substance on earth, the most addictive drug on earth, sugar, unhealthy, zero nutritive value, profoundly destructive to our immune system and to our overall health and well-being. And it came up again in relation to my children. Why don't you allow them to eat sugar? Well, we do allow them to eat sugar, 
occasionally as a treat, but not every day. We don't allow them to eat processed carbohydrates every day. It's a treat once in a great while. Why? It's not healthy. It possesses zero nutritive value. It's very destructive to your immune system and your gut-brain biome. The person I was talking to was obviously addicted to sugar. They were not horrified, but you could tell by their facial expression and the, the sounds that they made with their mouth that they were repulsed by our philosophy of diet. And even after my wife made it, again, clear that she's a nurse and that she does understand a little bit about health <laughs> and, and, and the processes of the body, it doesn't matter. When you're talking with an addict, and I know this from firsthand experience, when you're an addict, you could be presented, it's like Dennis Leary, the comedian, once said, you could put a blackened lung on the side of a box of cigarettes and charge $12 for a pack of cigarettes and people would still be lined up around the block to buy cigarettes. If you're addicted to cigarettes, you don't care when presented with the data that says, this is going to give you a black lung, this is going to be a heart disease, this is going to kill you, give you lung cancer. When you're addicted to a substance, no amount of information is going to change your mind about that substance. When I was at my bottom with alcohol and drugs, I knew alcohol and drugs were killing me. I knew they were bad for me, but I still took them because I was a slave to alcohol and drugs. That's kind of the point. When you're a slave to sugar, even when you know it's not healthy, when you know it's contributing to your compromised immune system and inflammation around your joints and obesity, it doesn't change the fact that you're going to continue to eat that because you're addicted to the mouth pleasure it gives you. You're addicted to the high that it gives you. That's why sugar is as addictive as cocaine and just as difficult to quit. As someone who has a sweet tooth, I can testify to that fact. But yet... As the article points out, even faced with this information about sugar, people that are addicted to sugar refuse to give up sugar. Likewise, walking out of a gym, if then this doesn't happen as much as it used to, but when I first started with martial arts, people would ask why I do it, and especially if I showed up with a black eye or a scratch or I had a broken toe or a dislocated thumb or whatever, people would ask, why do you do it? And I'd explain it, and then I'd, yeah, I could see. They didn't comprehend what I was saying. They didn't understand what I was telling them. It's like when I tell people today that I enjoy pain. Like I enjoy getting punched in the face. I enjoy getting choked. That's not normal to 99.9% .9 of the population. You're taught your whole life to avoid that kind of pain or just avoid pain altogether. So I understood proselytizing for BJJ or Muay Thai. People don't really care. At the end of the day, they don't really care. And when they find out that this is how I maintain my health. This is why I am the way that I am today. It's too much. And it's been said to me before. Well, that's just too much. It's too much work, too much uh, effort, too much dedication, too much sacrifice. Too much. And what they really mean is it's too uncomfortable. And it costs them too much. Meaning I got to give up the things that I like. I've got to give up my bad habits. I've got to give up sitting on the couch. I've got to give up the sugar. I've got to give up all of the things that go with my currently unhealthy lifestyle, which also then involves thoughtlessness, lack of impulse control, lack of discipline, all the things that I'm sure you're aware of. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast. But the point is that, yeah, when I walk out of the gym, I see most of the population as sheep, unthinking, uncaring, more than willing to let others think for them and determine reality for them even, determine what is normal for them. 
I mean, right now I can honestly say there's nothing that causes me more frustration than when someone says, well, I guess this is just the new normal. No, it's not. There's nothing new about this kind of normal. This is tyranny. When a governor or a federal political leader oversteps their authority according to the Constitution, that's not a new normal. People have done this for generations, for millennia. Whether it's the Stalins or the Maos or the Hitlers of the world, or whether it's the petty authoritarians like Newsom or other governors, it's the same old story. It's just autocracy. It's just petty authoritarianism. It's not normal. It's their normal, and they want you to embrace that as, quote-unquote, the new normal, but it's just the same old tyranny. And, of course, the the thing that's gumming up the works are individuals standing up demanding their rights, their constitutional rights, right? And that's why I see this, is that jujitsu people, in general, are problem solvers. That's why we get addicted to it. That's why we become obsessed with it. Because jujitsu is a problem that has no solution, as soon as you figure out the defense to one submission, there's another submission, there's another counter to that defense. It's an endless series of riddles. And so jiu-jitsu people are problem solvers. Therefore, in life, when presented with a problem or a challenge, our first instinct, our first reaction is, I got to solve this, I got to overcome this. Versus a majority of people that I encounter, when they encounter a problem, they just quit. They don't see problems as challenges to be overcome. They see problems as problems. And... I need medicine. I need a solution. Who's going to tell me what to do? Who's going to tell me how to get out of this? Who's going to save me from this? They always look to others. They always look to the group to save them from themselves. They always look to someone else to take responsibility from them so that they don't have to deal with the consequences of their decisions. That's why collectivism is so intoxicating, so seductive because it offers to take responsibility away from you. And although that may sound to us as individual thinkers as like a terrible thing, when you're in a situation and you don't want to take responsibility for it, you don't want to own your decisions, you don't want to be accountable, what do you do? Well, you got to find someone else to blame. you got to find someone else to take that burden off of you. Someone to come along and say, do this and all your problems will be solved. Take this and all your problems will be solved. This is why currently... Everyone talks about vaccinations. Everyone's talking about medicines. No one's talking about preventative measures to head off COVID-19 before it even gets to you. Health, diet, exercise, it's not even on the conversation chart right now. It's just vaccinations and medicine. Because again, diet and exercise, going out in the sun, getting the right kinds of exercise, getting the right kinds of foods into your body, putting the right kinds of things into your ears and your eyes takes individual responsibility. Having someone else say, here, come and get this shot and all your problems are solved. That doesn't require you to do much of anything. That's why we always look for the quick and easy solution, which by the way is never quick or easy in the end. So even countries such as North Korea during the famine of the 1990s or the Soviet Union under Stalin's reign, where the populations were starving, mostly unarmed, and where the rulers had at their disposal massive police forces, spy networks, and prison systems, these tyrannical regimes still found it necessary to make use of massive amounts of propaganda to glorify the collective of their nation. What this shows is that brute force is not enough to maintain tyranny. Rather, a tyrannical regime will only maintain power if they can control the minds of their subjects. 
when one realizes that gaining control of the minds of individuals is the most vital means for controlling a population, it becomes clear that the first step encountering tyranny is to undergo the difficult process of freeing one's own mind. As the psychologist Jordan Peterson wrote in his book, our petty weaknesses accumulate and multiply and become the great evils of state. As our technological power expands, the danger we pose increases as the consequences. The consequences of our voluntary stupidity multiply. It is increasingly necessary that we set ourselves, not others, right, and that we learn explicitly what that means. As our technological powers expand, the danger we pose increases and the consequences of our voluntary stupidity multiply. As our technological power expands and the consequences of our voluntary stupidity multiply, it is increasingly necessary for us as individuals to learn the consequences of what this means. This is not a selfish pursuit but rather a selfless pursuit because what we are asking is how can I improve myself as an individual so that I can improve society as a whole? How can I improve under other individuals if I can't even improve on myself? If I can't change my own heart, how am I expected to help others change themselves? So to skip down quite a bit then because I'm definitely past the, the uh, brief part of the debrief, but this is just so good. Skipping to the end then, while we are taught to believe that the individual is impotent in the presence of the great social problems which confront us today, the truth is the individual is far more powerful than commonly believed. One who has freed their mind, set themselves right, and in pursuit of the truth is unafraid to boldly speak their mind, even in the face of severe opposition, has, in the words of Carl Jung, unknowingly and involuntarily become a leader a role model which others will naturally strive to emulate. Such an individual will have become one less pawn in an oppression, oppressive system, and whether they are aware of it or not, will have assumed a crucial role in the regeneration of society. As Jung correctly observed, quote, the psychology of the individual is reflected in the psychology of the nation. Only a change in the attitude of the individual can initiate a change in the psychology of the nation. The great problems of humanity were never yet solved by general laws, but only through regeneration of the attitudes of individuals. Only when we as individual people change our own minds, change our own hearts, change our life, can we honestly claim that we have changed society for the better. And that multiplying laws will not multiply the success, the wealth, and the well-being of a nation. But the regeneration of a society, the regeneration of a nation, will begin and end with the attitudes of individuals. And that having freed our mind and set ourselves right, in the pursuit of the truth, not truths in a subjective sense, but truth in the objective sense. What is objectively true about good and evil? What is objectively true about justice and injustice? 
what is objectively true about every human being as a human being. And then to boldly speak our mind, even in the face of that collectivist ideology, that opposition that comes at us from those who demand that we get in line, demand that we join the herd, demand that we run off the cliff with them, demand that we become a cog in the wheel or a cog in the machine. When we say no, I refuse. Then in that moment when we say no more, no more lies, then we become unknowingly and involuntarily a leader, a role model that others will naturally strive to emulate because they will look at us and say, well, he's different. Well, she's got a different take on that. Why is she asking those questions? Well, why is he doing that when everybody else is doing that? And then that's when the momentum starts to build. That's when others say, hey, what, what are you doing over there? What are you reading? What are you thinking? Why are you doing this when everyone else isn't? Why are you not afraid when everyone else is panicking? Why are you not bending your knee when everyone else is down on their hands and their knees with their face to the ground? Why do you have a book open when everyone is looking at the TV? Why are you asking questions when everyone else is demanding answers? Only then will you become a leader and a role model for others. That's how it works. The individual is reflected by the nation. Only a change in the attitude of the individual can initiate a change in the psychology of the nation. Only by changing ourselves can we hope to change others. Only through a regeneration of ourselves can we hope to regenerate the, the whole. So I'll leave it at that. I've gone far beyond my time with you today. So thank you for indulging me. And like I said, I'll include a link to the transcript plus uh, post a video in the show notes, both at the website and at Anchor FM. If you like the podcast and you want to support what I do here, I truly appreciate it, especially right now when all of us are struggling, at least those of us who need a paycheck to put food on the table. You can share the podcast with others, promote it on social media, go to Anchor FM and click the support button to support me that way. Otherwise, I will see you again Sunday for a brand new episode. And as always, thank you so very much for listening to the podcast. Thanks for all the constructive feedback. I truly appreciate it. And it keeps me going and lets me know that you're actually listening and you actually are enjoying the content that I'm putting out there. So thank you for that too. I'm grateful for all of you. I'll see you next time. Peace.